Chapters eight to ten of Book One of Toilers of the Sea, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part Two, Malicious Gilliatt by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book One The Rock. Chapter Eight Importunique Volucas. Gilliatt slept well, but he was cold, and this awoke him from time to time. He had naturally placed his feet at the bottom and his head at the entrance to the cave. He had not taken the precaution to remove from his couch a number of angular stones, which did not by any means conduce to sleep. Now and then he half opened his eyes. At intervals he heard loud noises. It was the rising tide entering the caverns of the rocks, with a sound like the report of a cannon. All the circumstances of his position conspired to produce the effect of a vision. Hallucinations seemed to surround him. The vagueness of night increased this effect, and Gilliatt felt himself plunged into some region of unrealities. He asked himself if all were not a dream. Then he dropped to sleep again, and this time, in a veritable dream, found himself at the Bout de la Rue, at the Braves, at Saint-Sampson. In truth, from this time forward he lived in a dream. Towards the middle of the night a confused murmur filled the air. Gilliatt had a vague consciousness of it. Even in his sleep it was perhaps a breeze arising once when awakened by a cold shiver he opened his eyes a little wider than before clouds were moving in the zenith the moon was flying through the sky with one large star following closely in her footsteps gilliatt's mind was full of the incidents of his dreams the wild outlines of things in the darkness were exaggerated by this confusion with the impressions of his sleeping hours at daybreak he was half frozen but he slept soundly the sudden daylight aroused him from a slumber which might have been dangerous the alcove faced the rising sun gilliatt yawned stretched himself and sprang out of his sleeping-place his sleep had been so deep that he could not at first recall the circumstances of the night before by degrees the feeling of reality returned and he began to think of breakfast the weather was calm the sky cool and serene the clouds were gone the night wind had cleared the horizon and the sun rose brightly another fine day was commencing gilliatt felt joyful he threw off his overcoat and his leggings rolled them up in the sheepskin with the wool inside fastened the roll with a length of rope yarn and pushed it into the cavern for a shelter in case of rain this done he made his bed an operation which consisted in removing the stones which had annoyed him in the night. His bed made, he slid down the cord on to the deck of the Durande, and approached the niche where he had placed his basket of provisions. As it was very near the edge, the wind in the night had swept it down, and rolled it into the sea. It was evident that it would not be easy to recover it. There was a spirit of mischief and malice in a wind which had sought out his basket in that position. It was the commencement of hostilities. Gilliatt understood the token. 
to those who live in a state of rude familiarity with the sea it becomes natural to regard the wind as an individuality and the rocks as sentient beings nothing remained but the biscuit and the rye meal except the shellfish on which the shipwrecked sailor had supported a lingering existence upon the man-rock it was useless to think of subsisting by net or line fishing fish are naturally averse to the neighbourhood of rocks the drag and bow-net fishers would waste their labour among the breakers the points of which would be destructive only to their nets gilliatt breakfasted on a few limpets which he plucked with difficulty from the rocks he narrowly escaped breaking his knife in the attempt while he was making his spare meal he was sensible of a strange disturbance on the sea he looked around it was a swarm of gulls and sea-mews which had just alighted upon some low rocks and were beating their wings tumbling over each other screaming and shrieking all were swarming noisily upon the same point this horde with beaks and talons were evidently pillaging something it was gilliatt's basket rolled down upon a sharp point by the wind the basket had burst open the birds had gathered round immediately they were carrying off in their beaks all sorts of fragments of provisions gilliatt recognized from the distance his smoked beef and his salted fish it was their turn now to be aggressive the birds had taken to reprisals gilliatt had robbed them of their lodging they deprived him of his supper chapter nine the rock and how gilliatt used it a week passed although it was in the rainy season no rain fell a fact for which gilliatt felt thankful but the work he had entered upon surpassed in appearance at least the power of human hand or skill success appeared so improbable that the attempt seemed like madness it was not until a task is fairly grappled with that its difficulties and perils become fully manifest there is nothing like making a commencement for making evident how difficult it will be to come to the end every beginning is a struggle against resistance the first step is an exorable undeceiver a difficulty which we come to touch pricks like a thorn gilliatt found himself immediately in the presence of obstacles in order to raise the engine of the durande from the wreck in which it was three-fourths buried with any chance of success in order to accomplish the salvage in such a place and in such a season it seemed almost necessary to be a legion of men gilliatt was alone a complete apparatus of carpenters and engineers tools and implements were wanted gilliatt had a saw a hatchet a chisel and a hammer he wanted both a good workshop and a good shed gilliatt had not a roof to cover him provisions too were necessary but he had not even bread any one who could have seen gilliatt working on the rock during all that first work might have been puzzled to determine the nature of his operations he seemed to be no longer thinking either of the durande or the two douvres he was busy only among the breakers he seemed absorbed in saving the smaller parts of the shipwreck he took advantage of every high tide to strip the reefs of everything which the shipwreck had distributed among them he went from rock to rock picking up 
whatever the sea had scattered tatters of sailcloth pieces of iron splinters of panels shattered planking broken yards here a beam there a chain there a pulley at the same time he carefully surveyed all the recesses of the rocks to his great disappointment none were habitable he had suffered from the cold in the night where he had lodged between the stones on the summit of the rock and he would gladly have found some better refuge two of those recesses were somewhat extensive although the natural pavement of rock was almost everywhere oblique and uneven it was possible to stand upright and even to walk within them the wind and the rain wandered there at will but the highest tides did not reach them they were near the little douvre and were approachable at any time gilliatt decided that one should serve him as a storehouse the other as a forge with all the sail rope bands and all the reef earrings he could collect he made packages of the fragments of wreck tying up the wood and iron in bundles and the canvas in parcels he lashed all these together carefully as the rising tide approached these packages he began to drag them across the reefs to his storehouse in the hollow of the rocks he had found a top rope by means of which he had been able to haul even the large pieces of timber in the same manner he dragged from the sea the numerous portions of chains which he found scattered among the breakers gilliatt worked at these tasks with astonishing activity and tenacity he accomplished whatever he attempted nothing could withstand his ant-like perseverance at the end of the week he had gathered into this granite warehouse of marine stores and ranged into order all this miscellaneous and shapeless mass of salvage there was a corner for the tacks of sails, and a corner for sheets. Bowlines were not mixed with halyards. Parrels were arranged according to their number of holes. The coverings of rope-yarn, unwound from the broken anchorings, were tied in bunches. The dead eyes without pullers were separated from the tackle-blocks. Belaying pins, bull's-eyes, preventer-shrouds, downhauls, snatch-blocks, pendants, kevels, trusses, stoppers, sail-booms, if they were not completely damaged by the storm occupied different compartments all the cross-beams timber-work upright stanchions mastheads binding strakes port lids and clamps were heaped up apart wherever it was possible he had fixed the fragments of planks from the vessel's bottom one in the other there was no confusion between reef-points and nippers of the cable, nor of crow's-feet with tow-lines, nor of pulleys of the small with pulleys of the large ropes, nor of fragments from the waist with fragments from the stern. A place had been reserved for a portion of the cat-harpings of the Durande, which had supported the shrouds of the topmast and the futtock shrouds. Every portion had its place. The entire wreck was there classed and ticketed. It was a sort of chaos in a storehouse. A stay-sail fixed by huge stones served, though torn and damaged, to protect what the rain might have injured shattered as were the bows of the wreck he had succeeded in saving the two catheads with their three pulley blocks he had found the bowsprit too and had had much trouble in unrolling its gammoning it was very hard and tight having been according to custom made by the help of the windlass and in dry weather 
Gilliatt, however, persevered until he had detached it, this thick rope promising to be very useful to him. He had been equally successful in discovering the little anchor which had become fast in the hollow of a reef where the receding tide had left it uncovered. In what had been Tongruel's cabin he had found a piece of chalk which he preserved carefully. He reflected that he might have some marks to make. A fire-bucket and several pails in pretty good condition completed this stock of working materials. All that remained of the store of coal of the Durande he carried into the warehouse. In a week this salvage of debris was finished. The rock was swept clean, and the Durande was lightened. Nothing remained now to burden the hull except the machinery. The portion of the foreside bulwarks which hung to it did not distress the hull. The mass hung without dragging, being partly sustained by a ledge of rock. It was, however, large and broad, and heavy to drag, and would have encumbered his warehouse too much. This bulwarking looked something like a boat-builder's stocks. Gilliatt left it where it was. He had been profoundly thoughtful during all this labour. He had sought in vain for the figurehead, the doll, as the Guernsey folks called it, of the Durande. It was one of those things which the waves had carried away forever. Gilliatt would have given his hands to find it, if he had not had such peculiar need of them at that time. At the entrance to the storehouse and outside were two heaps of refuse, a heap of iron good for forging, and a heap of wood good for burning. Gilliatt was always at work at early dawn. Except his time of sleep, he did not take a moment of repose. The wild sea-birds flying hither and thither watched him at his work. CHAPTER Ten: THE FORGE the warehouse completed, Gilliatt constructed his forge. The other recess which he had chosen had within it a species of passage like a gallery in a mine of pretty good depth. He had had at first an idea of making this his lodging, but the draught was so continuous and so persevering in this passage that he had been compelled to give it up. This current of air, incessantly renewed, first gave him the notion of the forge. Since it could not be his chamber, he was determined that this cabin should be his smithy. To bend obstacles to our purposes is a great step towards triumph. The wind was Gilliatt's enemy. He had set about making it his servant. The proverb applied to certain kinds of men, fit for everything, good for nothing, may also be applied to the hollows of rocks. They give no advantages gratuitously. On one side we find a hollow, fashioned conveniently in the shape of a bath, but it allows the water to run away through a fissure. Here is a rocky chamber, but without a roof. Here a bed of moss, but oozy with wet. Here an armchair, but one of hard stone. The forge which Gilliatt intended was roughly sketched out by nature, but nothing could be more troublesome than to reduce this rough sketch to manageable shape, to transform this cavern into a laboratory and smith's shop. 
with three or four large rocks shaped like a funnel and ending in a narrow fissure chance had constructed there a species of vast ill-shapen blower a very different power to those huge old forge bellows of fourteen feet long which poured out at every breath ninety-eight thousand inches of air this was quite a different sort of construction the proportions of the hurricane cannot be definitely measured this excess of force was an embarrassment the incessant draught was difficult to regulate the cavern had two inconveniences the wind traversed it from end to end so did the water this was not the water of the sea but a continual little trickling stream more like a spring than a torrent the foam cast incessantly by the surf upon the rocks and sometimes more than a hundred feet in the air had filled with sea-water a natural cave situated among the high rocks overlooking the excavation the overflowings of this reservoir caused a little behind the escarpment a fall of water of about an inch in breadth and descending four or five fathoms an occasional contribution from the rains also helped to fill the reservoir from time to time a passing cloud dropped a shower into the rocky basin always overflowing the water was brackish and unfit to drink but clear this rill of water fell in graceful drops from the extremities of the long marine grasses as from the ends of a length of hair he was struck with the idea of making this water serve to regulate the draught in the cave by the means of a funnel made of planks roughly and hastily put together to form two or three pipes one of which was fitted with a valve and of a large tub arranged as a lower reservoir without checks or counterweight and completed solely by air-tight stuffing above and air-holes below gilliatt who as we have already said was handy at the forge and at the mechanic's bench succeeded in constructing instead of the forge bellows which he did not possess an apparatus less perfect than what is known nowadays by the name of cagnardel but less rude than what the people of the pyrenees anciently called a tromp he had some rye meal and he manufactured with it some paste he had also some white rope which picked out into tow with this paste and tow and some bits of wood he stopped all the crevices of the rock leaving only a little air passage made of a powder flask which he had found aboard the durande and which had served for loading the signal gun this powder flask was directed horizontally to a large stone which gilliatt made the hearth of the forge a stopper made of a piece of tow served to close it in case of need after this he heaped up the wood and coal upon the hearth struck his steel against the bare rock caught a spark upon a handful of loose tow and having ignited it soon lighted his forge fire he tried the blower it worked well gilliatt felt the pride of a cyclops he was the master of air water and fire master of the air for he had given a kind of lungs to the wind and changed the rude draught into a useful blower master of water for he had converted the little cascade into a trump master of fire for out of this moist rock he had struck a flame 
the cave being almost everywhere open to the sky the smoke issued freely blackening the curved escarpment the rocks which seemed destined forever to receive only the white foam became now familiar with the blackening smoke gilliatt selected for an anvil a large smooth round stone of about the required shape and dimensions it formed a base for the blows of his hammer but one that might fly and was very dangerous one of the extremities of this block rounded and ending in a point might for want of anything better serve instead of a conoid bicorn but the other kind of bicorn of the pyramidal form was wanting it was the ancient stone anvil of the troglodytes the surface polished by the waves had almost the firmness of steel he regretted not having brought his anvil as he did not know that the durande had been broken in two by the tempest he had hoped to find the carpenter's chest and all his tools generally kept in the forehold but it was precisely the forepart of the vessel which had been carried away these two excavations which he had found in the rock were contiguous the warehouse and the forge communicated with each other every evening when his work was ended he supped on a little biscuit moistened in water a sea urchin or a crab or a few chatins de mer the only food to be found among those rocks and shivering like his knotted cord mounted again to sleep in his cell upon the great douvre the very materialism of his daily occupation increased the kind of abstraction in which he lived to be steeped too deeply in realities is in itself a cause of visionary moods his bodily labour with its infinite variety of details detracted nothing from the sensation of stupor which arose from the strangeness of his position and his work ordinary body fatigue is a thread which binds man to the earth but the very peculiarity of the enterprise he was engaged in kept him in a sort of ideal twilight region there were times when he seemed to be striking blows with his hammer in the clouds at other moments his tools appeared to him like arms he had a singular feeling as if he was repressing or providing against some latent danger of attack untwisting ropes unravelling threads of yarn in a sail or propping up a couple of beams appeared to him at such times like fashioning engines of war the thousand minute pains which he took about his salvage operations produced at last in his mind the effect of precautions against aggressions little concealed and easy to anticipate he did not know the words which expressed the ideas but he perceived them his instincts became less and less those of the worker his habits more and more those of the savage man his business there was to subdue and direct the powers of nature he had an indistinct perception of it a strange enlargement of his ideas around him far as eye could reach was the vast prospect of endless labour wasted and lost nothing is more disturbing to the mind than the contemplations of the diffusion of forces at work in the unfathomable and illimitable space of the ocean 
the mind tends naturally to seek the object of these forces the unceasing movement in space the unwearying sea the clouds that seem ever hurrying somewhere the vast mysterious prodigality of effort all this is a problem whither does this perpetual movement tend what do these winds construct what do these giant blows build up these howling shocks and sobbings of the storm what do they end in and what is the business of this tumult the ebb and flow of these questionings is eternal as the flux and reflux of the sea itself gilliatt could answer for himself his work he knew but the agitation which surrounded him far and wide at all times perplexed him confusedly with its eternal questionings unknown to himself mechanically by the mere presence of external things and without any other effect than a strange unconscious bewilderment gilliatt in this dreamy mood blended his own toil somehow with the prodigious wasted labour of the sea-waves how indeed in that position could he escape the influence of that mystery of the dread laborious ocean how do other than meditate so far as meditation was possible upon the vacillation of the waves the perseverance of the foam the imperceptible wearing down of rocks the furious beatings of the four winds how terrible that perpetual recommencement that ocean-bed those danaides like clouds all that travail and weariness for no end for no end not so but for what? Oh, thou infinite unknown, thou only knowest. End of chapter 10 of book 1. Recording by Paul Adams, www.yongai.com.